Good morning out there, Lettered Streets Covenant Church. This is our first Sunday in the coronavirus reality, where we're not meeting together as a large group as the church. But you can't cancel church. So wherever you're gathered, whether in a small group or as a family, friends, whatever you're wearing or <clears throat> not wearing right now, the church is quite alive and quite active. So greetings in Christ from my home study. I look forward to sharing the word of God with you. Especially during these uncertain times in our world, where our daily lives are so altered by a microscopic virus and toilet paper, the hottest commodity in town, it's good for us to root ourselves in the living word of God. During this Lenten season, we're exploring the seven last words or phrases Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross. For centuries, followers of Jesus have reflected on and even savored Jesus's final words. This act of devotion as a Lenten practice helps us slow down and consider what it is that is dear to the heart of Jesus. Many leaders find the ability to say the right things and to do the right things when life is going well. But paying attention to a leader, or to anyone really, when their world is turned upside down, that's when we see their true character. A former professor of mine, John Stackhouse, wrote an article on the coronavirus recently. He quoted an old proverb that says something like, sometimes you have to upset the cup to find out what's inside. His point is that the coronavirus didn't cause crippling anxiety. It didn't cause selfish hoarding of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. It didn't cause xenophobic abuse of Asians or the vulnerabilities in our system of care for the marginalized. The coronavirus merely provided an opportunity for those things that were already in us and in our system to be seen in the light. Hanging on a cross for a crime you didn't commit by a people you created and then came to save, that would upset your cup. That will show us what is truly inside of Jesus. And what have we seen so far? In his first word, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, we see the heart of Jesus as he seeks forgiveness, even for those who have accused him and abandoned him and deserted him on the cross. In his second word, today you'll be with me in paradise, we're reminded that through the smallest bits of faith and trust in him, we have assurance not only for the resurrection life, but also for the interim time between death and resurrection. In his third word, mother, behold your son, and then to John he said, behold your mother, we have seen that Jesus, in the final moments of his life, is concerned not only for his mother and a disciple, but for creating a new community centered on Jesus. He's creating a family that is stronger than blood ties, or national identity, or ethnic origin, or gender, or any other human or biological construct. In his first three words, Jesus prays for us. He prays for our forgiveness, for our future, and for us to have a new family. That's what's in the cup of Jesus. That's his true character. But if Jesus were to have only those three words on the cross, we might be tempted to say something like, yeah, well, that's just Jesus. He's the Son of God. Maybe he wasn't really suffering as badly as it seems. If we were to make the mistake of thinking that somehow Jesus avoided the pain of the cross, his fourth word, the phrase we'll explore today, will set us straight. 
Let me read it to you, starting in Matthew 27, and I'll read verses 38 through 46. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for these words recorded by your servant Matthew and your servant Mark that relate to us so deeply, that remind us that you weren't just a surrogate for us on the cross. You weren't just uh, a God figure doing what you had to do, but you experienced the true pain and loss, the abandonment both that we sometimes feel today and that we deserve to feel on the cross ourselves. I thank you for being a God who identifies with us and for the fact that when I experience pain and when we experience pain, we can know that you know our pain and are with us. Guide us as we explore this passage and speak to us in this day, in this time, for such a time as this. Amen. One of the great strategies of the enemy is to make us believe that we're alone. You know what I'm talking about. Think of a time when you were a student. You're in class and the teacher's explaining something. Maybe it's from history or math or science. It doesn't matter, but you don't quite get it. A question raises up to the tip of your tongue, but you hold it in. Why? Because you assume that everyone else already understands. You don't want to feel the shame of being the only one who doesn't get it. So you're silent. And what you don't know is that half the class are doing the exact same thing, each assuming their question is not worth asking, each assuming they are the only one in the room with the question. We do this all the time with anxiety over world events. Is anyone else feeling the fear that I feel? Is anyone else as frustrated with the things as I am? Does anyone else feel as sad as I do? Am I the only one who struggles with my faith? Does everyone else know exactly what to think about Jesus and the economy? Or Jesus and sex? Or Jesus and politics? Or Jesus and anger? Or Jesus and... You fill in the blank. One of the biggest questions in life, and one of the hardest for many followers of Jesus to wrestle with is, does anyone else feel like they're alone? Like God just doesn't speak? Like 
Does anyone else want to shout, where is God in all of this mess? You are not alone. Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, inseparable member of the triune God, even he experienced separation from God. In his first three words, we have fantastic news about forgiveness, about our future security, and about our new community. But believing in those things takes faith. So what happens when we struggle with our faith? It is this fourth word of Jesus that is one of the most human of all. Jesus identifies with our doubts, fears, and feelings of abandonment. You are not alone. You are not a lesser human being or an inferior Christian for having doubts and fears about the love of God or even for having anger and confusion directed at God. There is so much in Jesus' fourth words on the cross to explore, but for the sake of time and clarity, I'll frame the rest of this sermon by asking three questions of the text. First, what was happening to Jesus on the cross that made him cry out? this fourth phrase. Second, why did Jesus experience such affliction and abandonment? And third, does Jesus's fourth word from the cross offer us anything for our own life and faith today? Okay, so what exactly is going on in this scene? What could possibly make Jesus, God himself, cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or another way of putting that is, why have you abandoned me? Oftentimes when we think of crucifixion, and especially when it's portrayed in film or on stage in plays, there's a tremendous effort to show how physically brutal it was. Any first century Jew or Gentile reading the gospel accounts would know well that crucifixion was brutal, humiliating, excruciatingly painful, and was viewed as an accursed way to die slowly. Everyone knew, and many knew firsthand, what being scourged with a whip was all about. But when we actually read the gospel accounts, there is very little literary space given to the physical description of Jesus's crucifixion. We aren't given any gory details or long explanations of Jesus's shortness of breath or his moaning or any of those details. Again, that's partly because people just knew already that when someone was crucified, it was horrible. But I think more importantly, the gospel writers are trying to communicate something more. It's not just that Jesus suffered and died. We'll get to that a bit more with this fifth word from the cross next week. But it's that they want to communicate more of the reason for the crucifixion and the theological significance of this event. In the accompanying liturgy, in the online resource section, you should have seen Psalm 22 as our scripture reading for the day. Jesus's fourth words from the cross are a direct quote from the first line of Psalm 22, which happens to be a lament psalm, a psalm that helps put words to some of the most horrible life experiences a person can have. In this scene, Jesus is truly feeling abandoned by God. Dale Bruner notes that in the Greek sentence, the preposition me is moved in front of the verb so that it literally reads, my God, my God, why have me you forsaken? 
Quoting Bruner directly, it's as if Jesus says, I know that you will not strive forever with a person's spirit. And he's quoting Genesis 6.3. I know that you finally leave themselves, those who abandon you. But why did you abandon me? I have been faithful to you as I know how. And I know that you don't abandon the faithful. So why me? Well, what's going on here? Clearly, Jesus is experiencing separation from the Father, but how can that be? The only thing that can separate someone from God is sin, but Jesus is the definition of righteousness. He never committed sin in his whole life. His sinlessness is the only reason that he's a suitable sacrifice to cover the sin of the world. Now, remember how I said we didn't get lots of detail from the gospel writers about the physical aspects of crucifixion? Well, look at what we do get. On the day the Lord Jesus was crucified, we get details about the weather, more specifically the sky. Verse 45 says, now starting at noon, darkness fell upon the land until 3 p.m. Isn't that strange? At noon, the brightest part of the day, darkness covers the land. It's as if creation were covering the shame and suffering of her creator. Matthew will go on to describe earthquakes and tremors as if, again, all creation trembled for her maker and Lord. But darkness over the land is also prophetic language for judgment. Take the prophet Amos chapter 8, for example. Israel had consistently rejected God and chosen to defile herself with idols and a way of life that led to death. And so through the prophet Amos, God warns them that one day in the day of the Lord, the day of judgment on the wicked, he says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So the judgment of the world, the judgment on every rebellious heart against God has fallen on Jesus in this moment. If only sin can separate someone from God, and if every sin was placed on Jesus in that three hours of darkness, then Jesus definitely experienced the darkness of hell, an excruciating existence without the Father, without beauty, without life, without color, without joy, without hope. That's what happened that made Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have me you forsaken? But here's the mystery of mysteries. Did God really leave Jesus there forsaken and alone? It's sort of impossible because Jesus is God. Jesus and the Father are one with the Holy Spirit in indivisible union. And so the great mystery is that it was God who suffered such dereliction. It was God who took on that pain and darkness and grief and alienation. That's what happened on the cross. Which leads us to the second question. Why? Why did Jesus experience such affliction and abandonment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is always the most difficult question in life. Why did such and such happen to me? Why did my friend betray me? Why did someone I love get cancer? Why did they get promotion and not me? Why is life so hard? Why do I struggle with this or that? Why was I born this way? Why? So much of life is lived in the mystery of why. We are rarely given any good answers to our whys. 
But one thing we can say is that Jesus experienced being forsaken. Why? Because of his deep and faithful love for you and for me and for his creation. Why did Jesus take on the judgment of the world, the the judgment that the world deserved, the judgment that I deserve? Because he would rather die than have you die. He would rather suffer than to have us suffer ultimately. And I think that one of the things this does for me is helps me grow in my love for Jesus. That's really what devotion is. When I consider what Jesus has done for me, I want to worship him. I want to know him. I want to please him. I want others to know his deep love and goodness. How does the self-giving love of Jesus toward you make you feel? How might you draw closer to him during this season of Lent and beyond? If you're listening at home, feel free to pause and discuss some of those next steps for you or the community you're in right now. So we've looked at the question of what happened on the cross that caused Jesus to cry out in agony and to feel rejected. And we've seen why he felt this way. He was taking our place and bearing the alienation we deserve. Thank you, Jesus. But finally, I want us to consider, does Jesus's fourth word from the cross offer us anything for our own life and faith today? We've already discussed some of the benefits. Just knowing that the judgment of God I deserve for my sin and rebellion has been covered on the cross, that's not just theoretical. If you've ever carried the crushing weight of guilt to the point that it makes you feel ashamed and even gives you physical symptoms, you know that being forgiven and set free is very practical. It's extremely down to earth. And I think the fact that it wasn't just my sins and the judgment being taken care of as if it was some kind of dust you could sweep away or some sort of bill that someone else could pay for you. But God himself suffered what I should have suffered because he loves me. And that has practical implications for how I see God, for how I relate to him. And it ought to change how I relate to other people who are so valuable that God took their sin on himself as well. But here's a practical element that I want to leave us with. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, as he suffers from the cross. He quotes a psalm of lament, one of several lament psalms in the Bible. And they're in the Bible for the community of God to have a place to put our pain. The lament psalms give us language and a place to cry, to get angry, to even curse and to fear and to admit that we're at the end of our rope and to do it all in faithfulness, to do it all before God and addressed to God. So many of us carry pain and we don't know what to do with it. But Jesus gives us an example here that the place to bring all of our anxiety and all of our suffering is to God. And we don't even have to be nice about it. Are you anxious about the state of the world or about coronavirus? Cry out to God. He hears you. He knows firsthand what it feels like to be afraid. Are you worried about your health or finances or how you'll juggle childcare during the school closure? Cry out to Jesus. He hears you. He knows firsthand what it feels like to be overwhelmed, poured out like water, heart melting like wax. Are you angry 
or gutted by the betrayal of a friend or spouse or even feeling betrayed by God. Join Jesus in crying out. He knows firsthand what it is to feel what we feel, to suffer and to feel alone. Jesus draws upon the ancient worship language of lament as a way of finding a place to put his feelings. And we can too. But there's one final twist that I want to share, but I I want to do it cautiously. Psalm 22 begins with great pain and fear, feelings of abandonment. But as it progresses, the psalmist begins to encourage himself by reminding himself that it was God who was with him from the very beginning of childhood. It was God who has always been faithful to him. And he finds it within himself to move from complaint to trust to even looking into the future of a time when he would rejoice in God again. And not only him, but all the nations. Make no mistake. Jesus is truly suffering in this scene. He truly feels forsaken. He truly dies. But he also knows the end of this Psalm 22. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews reflects that Jesus went to the cross despising the shame for the joy set before him, the joy of your salvation and mine. We never want to rush through grief. Lament is not the fast track to healing, but it is a roadmap, and Jesus walks that road with us. Do you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you once again for putting yourself in our place, for loving, enough, uh, uh, for loving us enough to suffer for us, to die for us, and to experience the alienation, the horrifying alienation of being separated from the Father. Lord, I thank you that through faith, we don't have to experience that same alienation, that you've created a path for us, for life, and eternal life at that. Lord, in the midst of our very down-to-earth suffering, our anxieties, our fears, our frustrations, our failures. Lord, help us to place all of that into your very capable hands, knowing that you can handle even our anger at you and our fear. And Lord, that we can be reminded that you're faithful and that even though we may not be able to experience it now, Would you hold out faith for us? Would you hold us in your trust and see us through to the other side? Help us to be faithful in this moment of crisis, to be good neighbors to those around us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.